today comes to us from Acts chapter 17. We begin in verse 1, read through verse 9. Acts 17, beginning in verse 1. After Paul and Silas had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This is the Messiah, Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and with the help of some ruffians in the marketplaces, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. While they were searching for Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, they attacked Jason's house. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some believers before the city authorities, shouting, These people who have been turning the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has entertained them as guests. They are all acting contrary to the decrees of the emperor, saying that there is another king named Jesus. The people and the city officials were disturbed when they heard this. And after, uh, and after they had, when they heard this, and after they had taken bail from Jason and the others, they let them go. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as scripture is read, as word is proclaimed, help us hear with joy what you say to us this day in your name. Amen. Okay, I don't know about you, but I have discovered that people will argue about anything. Do you agree? Even church people will argue about anything. Not church people, right? I'm not going to repeat that on the live stream. But, speaking of that, in the 1890s, there was a small Baptist church in Mayfield County, Kentucky. And the church had two deacons, and they argued and disagreed about everything. On one particular Sunday, one of the deacons uh, put a, a peg in the wall in the back of the church so that the pastor could hang his hat on it when he came into church. When the other deacon saw the peg, he was furious. How dare someone hang a peg in this church without talking to me first? The people in the church took sides and it split and over a hundred years later, people in that small county still refer to the two churches as Peg Baptist and Anti-Peg Baptist. <laughs> Do you agree with me that that sounds silly? True or false, people will argue about anything. When Paul leaves Philippi, as we continue our worship series called The Call, a series based on the study of the same title by Reverend Adam Hamilton, we pick Paul up in Philippi from last week. He leaves there. He heads down the coast of Macedonia in modern-day Greece 
through a few of the smaller named cities, and he comes to Thessalonica, also pronounced Thessalonica. Modern day, it is Thessaloniki. Uh, just a little bit of background on Thessaloniki. It is, it is uh, the second largest city in Greece, only to Athens. And uh, in uh, antiquity, especially in Paul's time and in uh, that time, it was a very strategic city because of where it was located on the Roman road that led from Constantinople to Rome. So it was often traveled. It became... Uh, one of the leading cities of Christendom, second only to Constantinople at one point in its existence. So a major city uh, in antiquity for Christians. And so he, he, uh, he goes there in Acts 17.2, we read about Paul here. He stays there uh, around a month and he preaches, quote, Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And, and he gathers a large number of followers there, primarily Gentiles. Uh, but then it happened, right? Somebody disagreed. The Jews became jealous. And in this church argument, they gathered a mob to hunt down Paul and most likely would have stoned him to death if they'd have found him. Their claim... In Acts 17, 6, quote, These people who have been disturbing the peace throughout the empire have also come here. Everyone does what is contrary to Caesar's decree, decrees by naming someone else as king, Jesus. He had to sneak out at night to get a way safer. I'm glad the preacher doesn't have to sneak out of service to get out of way safely, Amen. From Thessalonica, he heads on to Veria, uh, which is just out of Thessalonica. You see it there. It's, it's spelled Berea, but it's pronounced Veria. And in Acts 17, 10 through 15, uh, we read of his work there in, uh, in Veria. I don't think we have, I don't think I have that scripture. Yeah, I do. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas off to Veria, and when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. These Jews were most receptive than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the message very eagerly and examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, including not a few Greek women and men of high standing. But when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Veria as well, they came there too to stir up and incite the crowds. Then the believers immediately sent Paul away to the coast, but Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving instructions to have Silas and Timothy join him as soon as possible, they left him. Wow. So this is a shot that uh, I took in Thessalonica. Um, this is a shot of the city, and you see the Aegean Sea behind there, facing the coast. It's a beautiful city, uh, and uh, Paul got in a lot of trouble there. <laughs> uh, but it was a beautiful city, and so he spent about a month and then went on. This is the city uh, that he wrote back to the letters of the Thessalonians. It was to this city here. 
and then from there he went to Veria. This is the uh, uh, place in Veria where it was believed that Paul taught and did his teaching from. And so this is the, uh, 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 the building, the design that was uh, resurrected in the area where they believed that Paul did his teaching in Veria. And then after they left Veria, they went down to Athens. One of the most important philosophical and academic epicenters of the ancient world. You can read in Acts 17, 16 through 32 about Paul's stay in Athens, but I'll summarize it for you this morning. It says, he finds idols to greet gods everywhere. He preaches to the people in the Areopolis, and, and some convert, but not many. He is arrested there for, quote, teaching about foreign gods. He proclaims the gospel to the council on Mars Hill, also called the Aregopian Hill. Then he is released and heads on down to Corinth. This is a picture of Mars Hill. As you see in the background, you see the hill that kind of sits up there with a lot of people standing on it. Maybe you can't quite see that from, from the back there. But there's a hill in the middle of the photo, I promise. Um, that is Mars Hill. On that hill stood a structure um, that was the center of uh, commerce and also, uh, well, not just commerce, but, but the council seat of Athens, what they called the Areopagus. And uh, that's where Paul was brought to face trial sitting on Mars Hill. This is a shot I took standing from uh, the Parthenon looking down on Mars Hill. So the population of Athens would have been about 20,000 at the time. It was, uh, it's, it's a coastal city an academic epicenter, but wasn't on the main road from Rome to Constantinople, well, Byzantium at the time. But after he leaves Athens, he, he heads on down to Corinth. And Corinth, on the other hand, is a major city, population about 250,000. So, huge city. Uh, it was a major port city, and because of where it was located on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, um, it was a major port for sailors and traders who come through there um, on their way between connecting the east to the Middle East. And if Paul was surprised with the pagan symbols that he would have seen in Athens, he would have been blown away by the dozens upon dozens of temples to pagan deities that he found in Corinth. He began preaching in the synagogue, and, and he had a few converts in Corinth as well. But soon it would be clear that he was no longer welcome there either. Listen to Acts 18, 5 through 11. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him in protest, he shook the dust from his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. 
Crispus, the official of the synagogue, became a believer in the Lord together with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul became believers and were baptized. One night, the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will lay a hand on you to harm you, for there are many in this city who are my people. He stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This time, instead of just leaving town like he normally did or being run out of town quite literally in the middle of the night, he says what we read, that he plants a new church in Corinth. He's the kicker. Here's the kicker that made the Jews angry, though. He planted his new church right next door to the existing synagogue. You want to tick off a preacher? Plant a church next door. Amen? <laughs> Eventually, the leader of the synagogue and his entire family, though, became believers. Then we see the same pattern, though, start to play out again. The Jewish people got jealous and mad and tried to have him arrested by the government. Such a familiar claim, right? The, the similar uh, pattern over and over. These people are changing the way we've always done things and we don't like it, so let's get them. Let's arrest them and kick them on out. My brothers and my sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about staying the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about being safe, which just means staying the same. It's not about the cultural or societal norms. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about what I am most comfortable with. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not even about me. It is about those who have never, never heard the message before. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about the good news that Jesus brought and the good news that remained when Jesus left and the good news that is never going anywhere because of the Holy Spirit. Those who don't know and don't care about the way things have always been done, that's who the gospel of Jesus Christ is for. Can I get a witness? If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear this. The gospel is about love. The gospel is about love. The main problem with the people of Corinth, and most of the other places for that matter, is something called old stubborn spiritual pride. To be fair, I'm sure there was some fear and there's anxiety as well. I mean, let's put ourselves in their shoes for a minute. Put yourself in, in, in the shoes of where you sit today. This man comes in here. He, 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 he says that everything that you've been doing for so long is wrong. It is worth nothing. And you've got to change what you're doing on account of this one man named Jesus who is God in the flesh, who died and rose again for your sins. Now, what if somebody came in here and said, what you've been doing is all wrong. You've been worshiping these gods or this God who, who means nothing and you've got to change and you've got to worship this other man. All of a sudden, you've got to do it starting now. What would you do? 
you'd pitch a fit, right? You would revile and rebel, amen? You'd probably want to tar and feather and chase him out in the middle of the night, amen? So did the people who Paul was preaching to because that was the message Paul was bringing. You've got to change what you're doing because it's not right. Who are you to tell me what I've been doing isn't right? Are you with me this morning? Do you get it? Now you understand a little bit more (laughs) about why they reacted in the way that they reacted. This proposal changes life for us as we know it. I would have been scared too. I would have been filled with anxiety and anger as well. But the point is how they reacted to this. It wasn't amicable conversation. It wasn't respectful disagreement or it wasn't even a committee discussion, y'all. They reacted with violence. We aren't called, folks, listen to this. We aren't called to kick out those who are different than us. We aren't called to kick out those who disagree. We aren't called to, uh, uh, to, to, to remove those who come in telling us we're doing things wrong. Or those who seek to make our church better or even change the way that we've always done things a little bit. Even if we disagree, even if we don't like it, even if we don't want to like it, we are called to respond not with violence but with love. There's a difference, amen? What is this love that you speak of? This love is agape or it is the love that comes only from God because it's unconditional love. It has a beginning in God through creation and because of God's prevenient grace for love for us that came before all things, but it's a love that never ceases. It's a love that was displayed through Christ Jesus and that we hear about that we express every time we echo John 3.16. For God so loved agape the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is agape love. It's an unconditional love that says I will love you even when you won't love me back. I will love you even though you don't deserve to be loved. And if the world says you are unlovable, I will still love you. That is agape love. That is the love that is spoken of here. This is also the love that Paul spoke of when he preached to the Corinthians. Whenever he sent letters back to them in response to the way they treated him. He still had followers there. And he sent back a way that they were called to respond to the people who treated him badly. And this is where we get 1 Corinthians 13. What we call the love chapter. A few years after he left, it is believed Paul received word that the church in Corinth was splitting over every issue imaginable. And to this divided community, Paul writes a passage that he likely never conceived would be used only at weddings. He was trying to teach believers, some of whom had become a bit full of themselves, about the defining quality of Christian life. 
and the true evidence of spiritual maturity. That's what 1 Corinthians is actually all about. I want you to listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 13 as we prepare to close today. But whenever I do, I want you to hear it like this. I want you to hear it with your name being replaced for the word love. Every time you hear the word love, replace your name there. Replace the name of every person you know there. And fathom putting the name of every person out there in the place of the word love. Can you do that? We'll start with your name. Go from there. Here now, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, put your name there, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I have nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not incite on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they do come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it comes to an end. For we know only in part, we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Here now, the invitation to Holy Communion.